If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Never been to the border czar Kamala is lying again. Border Patrol agent R. Delcado joins me to break down the truth. Then from anarchy at the southern border to anarchy in Mexico, the documentary filmmaker behind HBO's The Anarchist is here in Nashville with some true stories that are stranger than fiction. And last but not least, ESPN's Stephen A. Smith is still trying to make Kaepernick a thing. And I have some final thoughts. That's next. Let's play a game, shall we? Two truths and a lie. A, a record amount of meth was seized at our southern border. B, the population equivalent of Ireland has invaded our southern border since Joe took office. Or C, our southern border is secure. If you picked C as the lie, you are correct. Now please, for the love of God, someone tell Kamala. The border is secure, but we also have a broken immigration system, in particular over the last four years before we came in and it needs to be fixed. We're gonna have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border's secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. But there are still a lot of problems that we are trying to fix, given the deterioration that happened over the last four years. We also have to put in place a, 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 a law and a plan for a pathway for citizenship for the millions of people who are here and are prepared to do what is legally required to gain citizenship. We don't have that in place because people are playing politics. All right, let's give Kamala our never been to the actual borders are the benefit of the doubt and say she isn't aware our border is indeed not secure because neither she nor her sleepy boss has bothered to actually see it. But aside from that little detail, can we talk about how she has the audacity to blame Donald Trump for issues at the border? That's either a bald-faced lie or what she means is that Trump did indeed deteriorate aspects of our border, the border-to-ballot-box pipeline the Democrats have been working on for years now. And if you're wondering, now that Trump isn't in office, that pipeline, well, it's coming along swimmingly. Here to react is Vice President of the National Border Patrol Council, Art Delcado. All right, Art, I'm not giving Kamala the benefit of the doubt. I think even she knows that the border isn't secure, but how can she possibly get away with that mumbo jumbo that came out of her mouth on Sunday morning? I, I don't even get how they can say something like that with a straight face. But if she thinks the border is secure, then how come her friends in New York and in Chicago are complaining about the buses being dropped off in, in, in their backyard? You know, so how secure is it? Um, and, and as they said, you know, over two million uh, have come across already. Uh, what needs to be pointed out is out of those two million, the majority have been released in the United States. So catch and release is still very much alive. And, and as you well know, because you've been down here in, to, uh, in the Tucson sector, uh, Tucson sector still it leads the entire nation when it gets to, gets to gotaways. And uh, so far this fiscal year alone, 
nationwide, there's over half a million gotaways, and the year isn't over yet. Now, look, I was born on the border. I grew up on the border. I was raised on the border. I've lived on my, the border my entire life, and I worked down here on the border. So I can tell you in you know my over 40 decades of life, I have never seen it as chaotic as it is right now. Uh, down in uh, certain areas of Arizona and Cochise County, we're seeing a car chase loaded with illegals daily. Uh, just a couple of days ago, there was an agent that uh, tried to perform a stop and uh, the smuggler drug him 15 feet as he was trying to stop the vehicle. Uh, there's attack on, on the agents down here. Uh, the, the cartels are the ones that are getting rich. So what they'll do is they'll flood one area of the border. They know that now the resources have to go to that area. They have to worry about transport. They have to worry about processing. They have to worry many times about hospital watch. And uh, the drug cartels see that. They have the hills scouted. They take advantage at that point to uh, smuggle people across that may have uh, more of a, of, a, of a bigger criminal background and or drugs because drugs are pouring in at an unsurmountable uh, uh, amount. And, and you know what's funny is we also heard from, from this administration that the majority of the drugs that come in, they come through the ports of entries. However, when the ports of entries were closed during the pandemic, we still had a ton of drugs coming into the country. We had many individuals in America that were overdosing and the price of drugs hasn't gone up. Why? Because drugs continue to pour into our nation in between the ports of entries. And this administration has dismantled the border and they're doing what they can to dismantle law enforcement that is protecting our nation's borders as well. So would you say, Art, that the Border Patrol agents are experiencing low morale right now? What is an average day in the life of a Border Patrol agent? Because I spent a lot of time with Border Patrol, and most of it was during the Trump administration. When they were doing their job, they felt empowered to do their job, a sense of duty. Of course, they were still being demoralized and demonized by the media. That was excruciating during the Trump administration, as we know. But they still felt like they were able to make an impact. What is it like for these agents on the ground today? You know, you, I'll use your own words. The, the the morale of the agents on the ground is on the ground right now. That That's how horrific it truly is. And, you know, you have to also see we come from a very big uh, high uh, of getting things done correctly under the Trump administration. I've been here for several administrations, and I, and I can tell you that under the Trump administration, things were getting done correctly. There was still a lot of obstacles, of course. But the morale was was high because we had the president's ear. We had a president that actually cared about border security and about law enforcement. But it was it's it's a complete turnaround under this administration. Uh, you know the lawlessness and for as much backing as President Trump gave law enforcement on the border, this administration gives that same backing to the criminal element. They continue to create that magnet for individuals to enter the United States illegally. Uh, it's catch and release all over again. You know, you have agents that go out there, they put on their uniform, they put they put their lives on the line. They, uh, they get involved in these vehicle uh, stops where these individuals don't stop. They go into car chases, very dangerous situation, or even out in the field. And then when they arrest these individuals, they claim asylum, which is just crazy. They, they go to all that effort to avoid apprehension, 
They go to all that effort to put our agents' lives in jeopardy. And then once they get apprehended, they claim asylum, they go through the asylum process, and then they get released in the United States. And many of their cases will not be heard till 85 months from now. They're not going to show up. Yeah, it's a notice to disappear. We've talked about that before. But I think what you brought up is really important for the American people to understand, because the last thing that the left is still trying to pull out of places the sun don't shine is this this claim of asylum. These people are you know, they're fleeing oppressive governments. They're in fear for their life. They're coming over here. Well, when our Fox News cameras ask the majority of these people once they've come over why they're here, whether they're coming over on buses that Abbott has sent up to Chicago or New York or they're just coming through into border cities and states, they'll say they came to work. Now, working is a noble thing. I think we can all agree with that. A lot of Americans don't want to work right now. But asylum is not, I would rather be in the United States than my country. But somehow, the left, like they do with everything else, has managed to mangle that definition. And for some people, they truly believe that what we're seeing right now, the population equivalent of Ireland coming into our country, is all asylum seekers. Art, please break down what these people actually are, by and large. You're 100% right. Financial, your financial situation is not an asylum claim. And to use the, the, the Democrats' own words, they have said that out of the, all the individuals that actually are claiming asylum, only 7% are actual true asylum claims. That's, that's what the big problem is. Look, I travel a lot. I have to go back east. And, and you see it in the planes constantly. You, you have the individuals that you see. Some of them will have an ankle bracelet. Some of them, you know, when they get to where they get to, they cut it off. Other individuals, you can see that they have the yellow envelope. That's their travel papers. So, you know, it, it's difficult at times to say because they entered illegally, but once they went through the process, now they're not illegal. They get that travel paper so they can work in the United States, so they can have benefits in the United States. And essentially everyone's getting one of those once they get released, uh, you know, and they'll go through the whole process. And at the end, we all know they're not going to show up. And I'll just give you an example. During the Obama administration, okay, and I'm going a little far back, but during the Obama administration, something that you spoke about, you had all those unaccompanied juveniles that came across. Many of those unaccompanied juveniles were 15 and 16 years old. That was seven, eight years ago. Where are those unaccompanied juveniles now? Because they're all adults now, and no one has kept track of them. So the two million so far that have come in, that have been released, years from now, we will not have kept track of them. What is even more scary, though, to me, and the American public needs to realize, and I'm not trying to be a fear monger, conspiracy theorist, or anything like that. I'm telling you like it is. Over one million gotaways. Who are they? Where are they from? What are their intentions? That is what's going to be a serious problem in this country for years to come. And no one's speaking about it. You've spoken about it. You've been down here. And you're one of the few that have spoken about, but no one's paying enough attention. And certainly this administration does not care. Yeah, because as soon as you start talking about some of the people that are coming over with not the best intentions, they call you a racist because that is their easy way of getting out of every difficult conversation is to label somebody a bigot, a racist or intolerant. But I want to talk to you about something that people really aren't covering outside of Fox News and conservative outlets. And that's the number of migrants, illegal immigrants who are dying, making the journey. There is border cities in Texas where their mortuaries, their medical examiners are saying we're inundated. We can't take any 
many more illegal immigrants. They're having to send them back and, and bodies being unidentified and buried. I mean, this is a, a real problem. But yet the left still wants to claim that their approach is the compassionate one. No, they've created that magnet. I, you know, I see it out here in southern Arizona. You've been out here. You've seen how horrible it is, the desert heat. So there's constantly in the, people that are being found in, in the middle of the desert that have died of dehydration. Obviously, you see the people crossing the river in uh, um, in Texas. But, you know, just a couple of months ago, there was a couple of individuals that uh, were trying to jump the fence. One of them dove off the 30 foot uh, fence and uh, and died, essentially. And, and it was it was horrific. And there was agents on scene immediately trying to assist, trying to help. And, and all that is being caused by this administration. They've created that magnet where they said, hey, it's okay to come, claim asylum, and you're gonna get released. And it's obvious because that's what's happening. What they're not factoring in is that you have the criminal drug cartels that are the ones that run everything on the border. So the drug cartels are there. When these migrants show up to the border, the cartels say, well, hold on. We're the ones running the show. We're going to tell you where to cross, how to cross, and, 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 and how many of you are going to cross. When they do that, it's just it's to cause a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's to be able to say, hey, now the resources of agents are going to be deployed in that area to have to bus a lot of these large groups. And all the while, the drug cartels, they just sit there and wait. And once those groups come across, they bring their product across. They bring the fentanyl across. They bring heroin across. They bring methamphetamines across. You've seen what's been apprehended at the port at the port of entry. That is a small amount compared to what's coming across into the U.S. And, 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 and what angers me is I hear all the excuses. I hear the racial ex excuses. Me being Hispanic, I, I've been called a race traitor one too many times. But I remind people, hey, look, I took an oath to the only country I care about. That's America. If that sounds racist, then I'm sorry. But this is my number one priority is this country, not anyone else. And the drug cartels bringing drugs across, they don't care about human life. No, they don't care whether not. you voted Republican, whether you voted uh, uh, Democrat. All they care about is the green, the money that they're making. And they're making this money right now because this administration has empowered them to do so by the criminal magnet that they have created. You're absolutely right about that. And another point that I like to drive home and I learn from agents and from people like yourself who have educated me on this over the years is that it costs a lot of money to get over that border illegally, whether it looks like they're struggling to get over because they want to come here and create a better life and make money. That may be true. However, they are paying thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars to a criminal enterprise to come over here. So while they are leaving their country, funding a criminal organization coming over to our country and then sucking our tax dollars dry, quite frankly, as an American, it pisses me off. And I'm sure it pisses off a lot of legal immigrants. Other thing I want to ask you about, though, because this actually is something that boggles my mind. Why right now? I know that they pick certain areas to inundate, but it seems like Texas, of course, in Arizona, they're getting the brunt of this. But you're not hearing about this happening in the numbers that we're seeing in Texas and Arizona in California, which is also a border state. Aren't why are they not seeing the influx in California that they are in other border states? You know, so the structure in California is, is, is a lot better because they've already 
uh, put some kind of wall there. There's actually a double wall in a lot of areas. So the structure for one, but a lot of the thing is the drug cartels. It's the cartels that are running everything south of the border. They know what areas uh, are, are harder for agents to respond to. And it makes it harder for them to be able to go to a processing center. And, and I'll give you Arizona, obviously, as, as one point, you know, you and you've been out here. But, you know, for the people that don't understand, there's a lot of mountain ranges and a lot of the stations are far away from the processing centers. So it could take an agent, you know, four hours to get to a spot to arrest individuals. And then they have to worry about driving them all the way back to the processing center. The cartels are very much aware of that. And, you know, what's crazy and it blows my mind is you mentioned Arizona, you mentioned Texas, um, Texas, you know, leading with numbers of people that are giving up and coming across and they're having to get processed. But, uh, you know, the administration, they're still having this agency take agents from Arizona to Texas so they can assist with processing in Texas. All the while, Arizona's leading the country in Godaways. So right. you're stripping more areas of the border even by doing that. And, and you mentioned the money. Uh, I, I need people to understand this so they can see you know, how, how rich the drug cartels are getting. Under other administrations, the drug cartels would charge, and I'm going to go with a low number. You know, just I'm not going to go with a high number. Some of it depends on where you're from, but let's just go with a low number. Let's just say $5,000 per individual to cross into the United States. Under, under, under other administrations, they would charge $5,000. They would bring individuals into the U.S., and they would have to worry about smuggling them to different parts of the United States via vehicles or anywhere, anywhere else they could do it. Under this administration, the drug cartels are still charging that same amount of money, but now it's just to cross through that part of the border knowing full well that they're going to get released in the United States. So, you know, they don't have the expense that they had before, but they're still making the same amount of money. And then you add in the, the huge amounts of drugs that they're making money off on the side because agents are distracted. I'll tell you why, because we're doing the busing forum. The, the cartel doesn't have to worry about transporting illegal immigrants to the places they want to go because they come over here and they get a bus ticket wherever they want to go. Not that I'm dogging anything that Governor Abbott is doing, because I think what he's doing is masterful and genius. And I think it's necessary to show these blue city mayors what's happening. But we're doing all the hard work on our tax dollars for the cartels. We're helping them in the process. We're becoming another link in the chain, which is inferior to me. But Art, I don't know where this is going. Uh, last question I have for you in the, in the time we have remaining. Let's say we take back Congress in November. Does this change at the border? Does it get better? Or under this administration, so long as this administration is in power, are we going to be seeing this until 2024? Longer? You, you always ask the hard questions, and, and, and I don't want to be a downer on your show. Uh, certainly, it would be a step in the right direction, getting the right people in, in political positions that actually care. And, 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 you know, it's just people that actually care uh, and that they seek the reality, because I see a lot of candidates sometimes and they'll say certain things that they're not certain of just to get the votes or they'll pander to certain individuals, you know. I ask people to look closely at some of those people that actually are speaking to the boots on the ground, not just, you know, the manager uh, in the piece or the people that are retired. They have to look at the actual uh, boots on the ground because those, those are the ones that actually have the answers of what's going on. Uh, but unfortunately, I think, you know, I hear all the talk of impeach this person, impeach that person in, in different CBP positions. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's the administration. It's the president 
They're the ones that are going to have to make the right decisions, put the right people in place running the agency. Uh, don't get me wrong. The midterms are great because it's a step in the right direction and it helps block policies from going through. But at the end, uh, we're going to have to uh, just wait it out till we have an administration that actually starts caring about the border and actually cares about law enforcement again. I agree with you. And unfortunately, by that time, who knows how many millions of illegal immigrants we're going to have in the United States and how many kids they're going to have by then. That's the cold, hard truth of all of this. We as a nation cannot afford to take care of the world's people, especially when we're dealing with the issues that we have right at home. Art, I wish we had more of a hopeful message. I'm just going to say 2024, maybe we can get in a DeSantis or maybe a Donald Trump again, put back remain in Mexico, actually enforce that border, finish that wall, and then maybe we'll make some headway. But until then, thank you for being on the front line and always bringing us the truth. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Of course, and hope to see you soon. All right. Still ahead, a fringe group of people who call themselves anarcho-capitalists found a safe haven, or so they thought, in Acapulco, Mexico. But it turns out that anarchy in paradise was anything but. The documentary filmmaker behind the HBO series joins me next. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It started as a libertarian on steroids conference in Acapulco, Mexico, for self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalists who wanted to live, learn, and raise their families under the thumb of no government, no control, no nothing, a stateless economy and way of life. But that way of life got a little messy when human nature collided with this pure freedom utopia. Take a look. Everyone thinks anarchy is uh, do whatever you want. Anarchy just means self-ownership the most peaceful ideology in the world. The state has oppressed me since birth. I was wanting more freedom and wanting to be controlled less. We wanted a pure anarchist life for our kids. Living in Mexico is a solution. What would you think about conference in Mexico? People just like you and I, who question authority, who want to live differently in Acapulco. It will change your life. That was just a tiny little taste of the six-part HBO documentary, The Anarchist. And if you're like me, you have a lot of questions. So who better to give us the scoop than the director, the producer, the co-creator of the series, Todd Schramke. All right, Todd, I was there at kind of the, the debut and watched the first episode. And for people that have not seen it, this is fascinating because it's true. And you spent a lot of time with these people. But to go back for people that are not familiar, what is an anarcho-capitalist? Uh, well, anarcho-capitalism is basically it's like a subculture within uh, a couple other subcultures. So it's most closely tied to the American libertarian movement. So if you think of figures like Ron Paul and Judge Napolitano, um, they you know believe in very minimal government. Well, an anarcho-capitalist is someone who just takes that and goes to a further extreme. Um, and just says no government at all, and um, and there's a long, complicated history too. The you know concept of anarchism actually goes back to the 1800s, and um, it was actually like a leftist, um, you know, kind of a sister to communism. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> a lot of people have kind of you know 
given us uh, some slack for, you know, not covering it and as a whole. But the show isn't really about the the philosophy. I mean, we only cover the philosophy as much as we need to to give the context to these subjects. But it's really a, a story about a community who were motivated uh, by this ideology to rebuild their lives and try to just look at things uh, quite differently from most of us. And, you know, but also I think it's very relatable too. And I think all of the subjects we were following have qualities that uh, most people can kind of see uh, themselves in. Certain qualities, yeah. but for people that haven't watched it, that I'm sure that they're gonna watch it now because it's incredibly interesting. But these people, largely Americans, who said, you know what, I'm getting sick of this whole government thing. Let's go to Mexico. I know, let's go to one of the most dangerous places in the world. Let's leave everything behind, let's sell everything, let's pack up ourselves, our wives, our kids, and let's go and just basically live in a colony of people who don't believe in government. That sounds a little cult-like, and in some ways, after watching it, it is a little cult-like, but this whole utopia that they wanted to establish with basically no rules, no government, a stateless economy, it kind of goes awry for these people. And you were there, you were covering it, you were living it with them. Tell my viewers without spoiling it, what happened when these people got to Mexico and thought they could live their lives this way? Yeah, it's you know very natural to, uh, I'm the cult documentary is a format now with shows like Wild right. Wild Country and uh, the Nexium. you know, there's been a million documentaries about that. So people want to categorize it and there are you know it's a subculture so it's a, you know a type of culture so it, it's easy to say it's like a cult but it's almost like a, a strange subversion of it it was uh it was actually built around this conference called anarchapolco which was founded by this influencer jeff berwick who is a you know very outspoken controversial anarchist figure and uh yeah he you know on kind of a whim just started this conference thinking like he was he was going to these libertarian conferences in the US thinking they weren't free enough. So right. he is, you know, someone who likes to party and he thought, well, let's just do it in Mexico and the town that he had been living in and had, you know, started a family with, uh, uh, a Mexican woman down in Acapulco. So he founded this conference and it, you know, wasn't run very well. It was kind of what you would imagine. Um, a group of anarchists impulsively. It was like fire Festival. For those that need to liken it to something, it was essentially like a fire Festival. They still provided, you know, some content, but it was kind of haphazard at best, at least at the onset. People were going and like, what is this? But then they kind of found a fellowship yeah, in it. it. It was kind of like that, but it, it, if you imagine fire Festival had happened, but the, all of the, like, influencers who showed up to fire Festival didn't just freak out and panic, but actually were like, well, let's actually just make this work. This, let's just this burn sucks, books. But like, let's, yeah, <laughs> let's do something. And uh, yeah, so this one uh, man who went down with his family, Nathan Freeman, uh, he saw an opportunity and he was living this comfortable suburban middle-class life in Georgia and uh, decided, you know, he was very much getting deeper, deeper into libertarianism and eventually anarchism. And also a huge part of this was uh, this idea of unschooling, which was trying to get your children out of government schools as, you know, one of many ways you can try to uh, get away from government power. So he thought, well, you know, there really aren't strict laws about schooling in Mexico. Kids don't go to school all the time. So he thought this is a better place to unschool my kids, which is just a you know more extreme form of homeschooling, I guess you could right. say. 
and uh, he well, took over the conference. Let's touch on yeah. that because the opening scene of your documentary is this family and other families with their young children screaming expletives, burning books. Okay, so it shocks your system right away because you're seeing these young kids who look like nice little kindergartners, first graders, and they're yelling the F word and they're burning things. And it's extreme. So unschooling, there's a lot of parents that are like, oh, unschooling, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, the liberal indoctrination and I'm tired of all the stuff that's being ramrodded down kids' throats and the masks and this. This is a very extreme version of that, or at least that's what we see in your documentary. Yeah, the idea with unschooling really is just, uh, it's almost like a Montessori type of environment that you create for your kids, but just in the real world. Is that what you saw, though? I mean, you are with these so, people, and you are with these kids, so I want to get the real deal from you. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you can. it's a blank slate, so you could do a lot of different things in the same way homeschooling. You could, you know, homeschool your kids in a lot of different ways, and it, it's interesting seeing the public reaction to that opening scene, because obviously right. we put it there because it's shocking and grabbing, yeah. but also it was largely like they were having a party, and it was like they were doing it ironically because they're yeah. anarchists, and... Uh, Nathan even says in the scene, I've, you know, I never thought I'd be so happy seeing kids burning books because it's, yeah. you know, he's he's aware of the, you know, cultural context of what book burning means and and the shock uh, value. Of yeah, it. and I the mean, shock value. I think there's a part of it where it's they wanted to, to shock people and it's extremes and it's kind of a just a way of life that it's meant to be really in people's face or at least that's what your documentary is. But from you, I mean, how many years did you spend? With these people, uh, it was six years. I mean, six yeah, we're years. still in touch with them. We're still following them, and uh, you know, we, I don't know if there will be more content coming out, uh, but they're still living their lives. And are they happy with their decision? Are they still living in Acapulco, thinking that this is a great way to be, and it, it turned out well for the majority of these people? Uh, it depends what you mean by well. Um, none of the main subjects we followed, uh, except for Jeff Berwick, still live in Acapulco, and even Jeff is only there part-time. So the uh, community they dreamed of building there, yeah, you'll have to watch the show to really right. see how it unfolded, but it didn't work out exactly how they planned. But I think also they <laughs> learned some you know, valuable lessons along the way. But it's not like these people, and when you watch the, just watching the, the first episode in your screening with, with you guys, it's not like these people are going to live off the land. I mean, they still need money. They still need to provide some kind of a service. So, yes, it's a stateless economy and all these things, but they still need to do something to make a living, even in Mexico. And some of these people that went to this community were also fleeing the law in the United States. So it started getting a little hairy because not all the individuals had the same background and things got a little weird, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there was really this hope that because everyone who was showing up first to the conference and then the people who stayed to be a part of the local community, the expat community, they thought that their ideology would really provide for them. And that right. because they all shared this system of belief that they could come together and build something. And uh, there was so much going on in that community that just never came to fruition, and we didn't even bother to put it into the show because it, it was right. it just you know things are not happening. People planning to start big businesses and you know buying land and all that, and uh, you had this community of people too who are like very very radical individualists, and they all want to be you know the leaders of their own lives and their own destiny. But uh, things get complicated when you have that and. Uh, how do you, you know, nobody wants to take orders, nobody wants to right. follow a hierarchy, so it's 
becomes difficult to get things done. Kind of like an animal farm type of situation in some ways. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it, there's like such an inclination to compare it to these things, but it's because... It, the reason I think this story is so interesting and dramatic, though, is because it subverts so many expectations right. in that, um, yes, it was, you know, a story of people trying to build a utopia, but also it was a story of a lot of people who were really suffering and who were damaged. And mm -hmm. the reason they were down there was very often because they were facing some sort of, uh, you know, action from the state, from a government. And a great example of that are two of our main subjects, John and Lily, who were these young, uh, you know, hippie, dreadlocked kids, you know, just out of, you know, dropping out of college. And they were busted for, a, you know, what should have been a relatively minor cannabis charge in the state of Ohio. But John was a repeat offender and they were, you know, supposedly facing up to decades in prison. Um, probably wouldn't have been that bad for Lily. It's complicated. But yeah, they were, um, you know, Ron Paul supporters, really. They were right. like just young libertarians who weren't dangerous people, but were facing prison. And that was one of many things that just drove them, you know, to this further extreme where they uh, tried when they were younger participating in electoral politics, but saw how difficult and damaged that system is and how so many people just get swept up, like supporting a candidate who they think is someone who's an outside voice who can do things differently um, because they've faced something in their lives or they know people who have faced some sort of uh, right. state oppression. And yeah, they went to this community thinking that, you know, they would find community and they really... Right. Everybody yeah. just wants somewhere to belong, and we call these people kind of fringe, and, and it is fringe in some ways, but I think you talk about people trying to make comparisons, watching the, the series, the docuseries, and they're trying to say, you know, these people are this, these people are that. Now, when I first watched it, I said, these people look like liberals to me, but some people watch and go, these look like Trump supporters, so everybody gets something different out of it, but these people are not... They're not all Trump supporters. They're not all Bernie supporters. They're not really supporters of, of anything, but there is a quick rush, at least for people in this polarized nature of politics that we live in, to want to label someone something if they're on the fringe of something. But that's not what you saw. Yeah, I think it's a the most common pattern is, I would say, people often start with something more traditional. They start with something, like I mentioned, the Ron Paul campaign. They get a, you know, into a movement that seems not that fringe. It's a little, you know, the stuff Ron Paul said in the debates back in 2008 and 2012 were right. far out, like, compared to, you know, most of the candidates, but it wasn't, like, shocking, and he wasn't promoting anarchism. But then people devote themselves to it entirely and just see how it goes absolutely nowhere. And the current power system kind of pushes these outsider candidates away, and people feel completely disenfranchised, and they wasted their time. And it's happened on the left, too, because there is a totally different, like I said before, branch of anarchism that is, like, one could say more historically in tune with the anarchist movement. Um, but there are people who got into Bernie Sanders in the right. past couple election cycles and just saw how that didn't go anywhere, how all, you know, the current power structures pushed these candidates away. And they gave up, and they were kind of just 
you know, like, screw it. Maybe no government is the answer. If we can't change the one we have, maybe we need to totally rethink how we're running society. So then they go to Mexico that's run by the cartels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, well, <laughs> that's what's so interesting to me. It's like, I get it. Our, our yeah. political system is broken in a lot of ways, right? But I'm not sure that the answer to that is Mexico that is really entirely run by criminal organizations. I know we're going to see some of that, too, for those that haven't watched the docu-series. It's very enlightening, not only about these people, but Mexico and this weird environment that they're in. But in closing, because you were there, you spent all this time with these people. What surprised you the most after spending six years and then putting all of this footage together, looking back on it? Uh, I mean, there were so many events that were just completely shocking and surprising. There was a murder, three of our main subjects in the show died during the making, so just the events themselves were shocking, but I think what was uh, maybe not surprising the most, but the most satisfying about the show was seeing the growth of all of these subjects throughout the years and how they were actually very capable, and I think it's a beautiful thing about doing a documentary over a long period of time is that you're getting a bigger picture of a person as they mm -hmm. experience you know, something very significant in their lives and you can actually follow and see the consequences of it and pretty much all of these subjects even though I, they for the most part didn't go to completely denounce the idea of anarchism and radical ideology they grew and matured in ways that allowed them to embrace ambiguity and embrace nuance in their lives and I think that's something that uh, you know our world could generally use more right. of um, you know, and I think that's true even in your story. I think the most controversial th thing, controversial thing you ever were uh, taken or attacked for was just taking a nuanced stance on something. Right. Well, uh, I've been attacked <laughs> for a lot of things. So yeah, well, yeah. There's a lot of things. But what affected your but, yeah. career most was like not an extreme opinion, but it was right. a nuanced opinion. And I, you know, I think our world, and that's I, I'm talking about the yeah. uh, your opinion on abortion. Um, and I, I think our world needs more of that. We need to realize that no individual knows the answers to everything, and we need to engage in conversation and realize that actually developing the policies of how our society runs uh, is a process and <laughs> requires listening and conversation and negotiation. And you can't put people in a box because we can't exist in a box, and they want to put you in a box, and then when you don't fit in the box, they want to call you fringe. Yeah. And that's not necessarily fair in every case. but. The, the docu-series is fantastic. I mean, congratulations to you guys for what you were able to accomplish. We're looking forward to seeing what you guys do next because it's fantastic and it really sucks you in. I mean, you can't get much better than children book burning over flames <laughs> in an opening scene. So I encourage everybody to, to take a look at The Anarchist. HBO, that's a big deal for you guys. So congratulations once again. I know you guys put in all the work, but that HBO stamp is not a bad, <laughs> yeah, they were not a bad accolade, with, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, still ahead, switching gears majorly here. Our buddy Stephen A. Smith is still trying to resurrect Colin Kaepernick from the professional sports graveyard. And my final thoughts are next. ESPN's resident race baiter Stephen A. Smith is still trying to make Colin Kaepernick a thing, and you know I have some final thoughts. Colin Kaepernick hasn't played football in five years, but because he was the first to garner widespread attention for his America-hating tantrums, he will forever be a martyr for the faux civil rights movement of whiny wokesters. And that's fine. 
Let him be a social justice warrior, a Nike ambassador, an influencer for all things ungrateful and anti-American, whatever. But for the love of God, can y'all stop trying to convince professional sports that professional victim Colin Kaepernick is still a professional athlete? Every time an NFL player gets hurt or retires or breaks a damn pinky nail, the political activist wannabes over at ESPN, a.k.a. MSNBC Light, try to make Kaepernick happen again. But, uh, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Don't do it. Because Keyshawn and I were talking about this outside as well. You know what? This is a different subject for another day, maybe. It will never happen, in my opinion. Might want to make that call to Colin Kaepernick. Might want to take that change. Might want to find out. Now, now, he ain't been around, but he's a playmaker with his legs. Who's available? You got to take that into consideration. You got to take all. Now, I don't think it will ever happen because it's in Texas, in the state of Texas. You know what I'm saying? You know, patriotic individuals that they pride themselves on being since, you know, the whole Kaepernick situation was hijacked. That narrative was hijacked to them. It's that. And Jerry Jones not going to let that get in the way of business. But I, I would think about it. I would say that. Good Lord, Stephen A. Smith wants Kaepernick to be in the NFL more than he does at this point. Give it a rest. He's not good enough to be in the NFL, Stephen. He was benched five years ago because he wasn't good enough then, let alone now. He opted out of his 49ers contract to become a professional crybaby. He sued and settled with the NFL. Then, when the attention started to dwindle, he was given opportunity after opportunity, a workout, tryouts, all of it, and still, he wet the bed. None of it due to racism. Hate to break the news, but the vast majority of those who play in the NFL are black. And Stephen A. Smith sure as hell knows all of that, but he has to play that race card because he can't help himself. Stephen, if we want to resurrect quarterbacks who aren't good enough to play anymore, why don't we hear you chirp, chirp, chirping about giving Tim Tebow a call? Doesn't fit the color palette or what? Shoot, at this point in the woke matrix of idiocy, why doesn't Kaepernick just identify as a woman and play Powerpuff since probably, maybe, he has a legit shot at that? Or maybe Colin could take a shot at the presidency since there doesn't seem to be any basic standards left over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Both are good options, more realistic options than the gosh darn National Football League Colin himself likened to slavery. And by Colin's own logic, Stephen, why are you pushing so hard for him to be re-enslaved? Let sleepy dogs and failed footballers lie and stop trying to make Kaepernick a thing. It's done. It's over. Let's move on. And those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show on Outkick.com and follow me across social media at Tommy Laren from Nashville. God bless and take care.